This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. Have you ever wondered why evil exists? How? If this world was actually made by a virtuous God, did they allow for tragedy, for fire, for death, for the stiffness in your neck, and the clock that slowly counts down the seconds you have left? According to the Cathars, the pain you experience in this world has nothing to do with a virtuous God. You've been trapped here, in physical form, by something much less holy. As a test, and the Cathars claim to know the way out. We'd say you could ask one what that path looks like, but you can't. They were slaughtered centuries ago by an institution that feared that the Cathar message might undermine their dominance, the Catholic Church. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first episode on the Cathars, a medieval religious community that first appeared in Europe sometime during the 12th century. You may know them best as the inspiration for the Lord of Light religion in George R.R. Martin's Game of Thrones. It believes in two gods, a god of light and love and joy, and a god of darkness, evil and fear, eternally at war. 
This week, we'll discuss why the Cathars were created in the first place and why they were so loathed by the Catholic Church. We'll also take an in-depth look into their culture, their way of life, and their escape into hiding. Next week, we'll follow the Cathars' journey into the shadows and examine how that secrecy affected their culture. We'll also look at the genocide that allegedly spelled their doom, the Albigensian Crusade, before contemplating some of the questions that have been raised about the Cathars after their deaths, like, are they actually gone? And what is their connection to another infamous secret society, the Knights Templar? Most of what we know about the Cathars and their way of life comes from confessions their members made to Catholic priests at the beginning of the 13th century. Confessions made during the Crusade that were devastating to their communities. Those who begged for mercy were given the option to either repent their sinful, heretical ways or die. But there's undoubtedly more to their story than came out in these confessions. Secrets they never gave up even as they were forcibly converted to a new faith and pinned with yellow crosses, symbols of their shame, for formerly being a Cathar. In this episode, we're going to examine the Cathars only through the lens of these admissions to get a sense of the type of organization they claimed to be before they disappeared. To do that, we're going to try to take the information we have at face value. There's no documentation about the Cathars prior to their confessions. That's because they were extreme ascetics. They renounced all worldly things, institutions, wealth, notoriety, sex, power. Since they didn't care about building a following or being remembered, they didn't bother to write things down. Which makes them incredibly difficult to track. In fact, there have been suggestions that they may have never existed. But we won't go that far. Most historians agree that they almost certainly were real. They were mostly concentrated in France and Italy, with a few more communities spread throughout Western Europe. And they originated sometime around the 12th century. As a religion, the Cathars weren't wholly original. They were derivative of earlier movements, like the Bogomils and the Manichaeans, dualist groups. Dualism essentially means that they believed in two gods, one good, the other evil, both trapped in an eternal conflict. However, there's enough disagreement among historians about the exact origin and timeline that we're going to skip over how the Cathars were created and jump straight to why. The Cathars formed to answer one question, what created evil? According to Catholicism, the leading religion in Europe at the time, God created evil. God created everything. But the earliest Cathars questioned that premise, and their search for their own answers led to a new religion that rejected some of the most fundamental principles of Christianity. Like the one spelled out clearly in one of the church's most important creeds, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all that is seen and unseen. As such, the Catholic Church labeled the Cathars heretics and sinners. The Cathars weren't alone in that classification. 
In the 12th century, the Vatican dominated the political and religious landscapes of Europe, and they achieved that status by denouncing, converting, and slaughtering anyone with a religious affiliation outside of their own. It didn't behoove any organization to make enemies with the church, let alone a religious one. But the Cathars weren't just any religious organization. The Vatican feared them for legitimate reasons. Unlike other groups that the church labeled heretics, the Cathars considered themselves Christians. And not just Christians, but true Christians. They weren't shy about proclaiming it either. The Cathars blatantly positioned themselves in opposition to the church. In their religious text, The Book of Two Principles, they explicitly referred to the Catholics as their opponent, not because the Cathars wanted to compete, but because they believed that the Catholic Church was a hypocritical, fear-mongering organization motivated by greed and power. They were evil, and thus an enemy. Yes, the church had other adversaries and had been called much worse things. But the reason the Catholic Church was so petrified of the Cathars was because they were right. Dualism aside, the Cathars were objectively better Christians. They actually practiced what the contemporary Catholic church leaders often only preached. Namely, mercy, righteousness, forgiveness. And like we said, they considered themselves Christians, which meant their beliefs always felt familiar to other Christians. The Bible was, after all, the primary source for the Book of Two Principles. But instead of acknowledging its entirety, they only used the Gospels, the four books specifically devoted to the teachings and revelations of Jesus Christ. And they never believed that the Gospels were literal or historical accounts. They were interpretive. The Cathars selected whatever seemed to them true, that reflected their human living experience. Then they filled in any holes with other religious influences. The biggest philosophical divergence between the Cathars and the Catholic Church is that they believed in two gods and not one. That belief came from the idea that nothing is capable of creation besides a god. And if a virtuous god didn't make evil, it only makes sense that there's an evil god, a yin and a yang. On the surface, the dualism of the Cathars doesn't seem so different from the Catholic pairing of the virtuous creator God and the evil fallen angel, Satan. But in practice, it made the two systems extremely different, especially as it relates to how each religion views morality. For example, take the Catholic Church. One God created all things, good and evil, Satan included. Mankind was made in God's image. The world is divided into those who choose good, those who choose evil, and all those that fall somewhere in between, which creates a sliding scale of morality. Those most moral are at the top with God, and the least at the bottom with Satan. Where exactly everyone fits on that scale isn't exactly black and white, but presumably those who dedicate themselves to God, like the priests, the cardinals, and the pope, are inherently superior. Conveniently, they're the same people who translate the word of God for the masses. What that meant, especially in the 12th century, was influence. Now take the Cathars. Good and bad, black and white. The world is bad. Heaven is good. There's no scale. Everyone and everything are presumed evil. So it levels the playing field entirely. 
which, if you think about it, is pretty radical, and seriously threatened all worldly institutions, especially the papacy. And the Cathars weren't passive threats to the Pope. They actively criticized the Vatican. The Book of Two Principles reads like a persuasive legal document on why the Catholic Church is wrong. It begins with, Since many persons are hampered in rightly understanding the truth, I have made it my purpose to explain our true faith by evidence and with eminently suitable arguments. There's the occasional congratulatory aside. Like, we may with most excellent reason reject the doctrine of our opponents by the testimony of the scriptures. After, they systematically undermine the logic of the Catholic Church, debating the etymologies and definitions of words like create and make. We'll spare you the semantics and summarize their creation story as best we can. But before we begin, we should note we'll be using the term devil to refer to the evil deity of Catharism. But it isn't entirely accurate. The Cathars occasionally referred to it as Rex Mundi, or the king of this world. He was something of a conflation between Satan and God that appeared in the Old Testament, which they insisted had to be different than the one represented in the New Testament. But for linguistic clarity and as a helpful cultural touchstone, we'll use devil and Rex Mundi interchangeably. Without further ado... One day, Rex Mundi arrived at the gates of heaven, but for thousands of years he was refused entrance. He waited and waited patiently until opportunity struck. The gate was left open and he slipped inside. There, he gathered a crowd of angels to deliver a message. God was keeping them captive. If they remained in heaven, they would be nothing more than God's slaves. But if they followed him, Rex Mundi would give them free will. He would give them all of the pleasures they desired. And then he tore a hole in heaven. Those that were seduced by his promises went through. And for nine days and nine nights they fell. Until they arrived on earth, the devil's realm. They quickly realized the gravity of the decision they'd made, but the devil trapped their souls in prisons of flesh, human bodies. He told them not to worry. In time, they'd forget about heaven entirely. There was only one problem. Rex Mundi wasn't able to fully deliver on his promise. He couldn't figure out how to give the angels free will, so the devil had to call on God. God heard his plea and agreed to help, but on one condition. The souls of the angels would forever belong to the light. They could remain on earth for countless lifetimes, reincarnated time and time again. But they must be given the opportunity to work their way back into heavenly grace. All they'd have to do is renounce their bodies and all temptation. You are a descendant of these souls, a fallen angel living in hell. Your life has no value except as a means to get into heaven. According to the Cathars, from your first to your last breath, you're preparing to die. Coming up, 
The Structure and Rituals of the Cathars. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Sometime around the 12th century, Catharism began in Western Europe. The dualist religion believed that our world was created by the devil, and our purpose, as fallen angels, was to shed human desire in order to regain entrance to heaven. The Cathars' presence angered the Catholic Church, who considered them heretics, but there were many similarities between the Cathars and Christianity. The four Gospels of the Bible were critical to both faiths. In fact, the Cathars considered themselves the superior Christians. After all, they had answers to questions that the Church didn't. Like, is free will moral? But those answers might have gotten them killed. Their theological stances opened them up to further criticism. For instance, the Cathars embraced the concept of femininity, which isn't uncommon in pagan religions, but it is rare for any form of Christianity. They believed that God was both male and female. Some even personified the feminine aspects of God and named them Sophia. She held the wisdom of God. On the other hand, sex and gender play no role in their creation story. Eve didn't incite humanity's fall from grace. It was a community of sexless, genderless angels. And unlike other religious groups, women were an established part of their hierarchy and able to hold leadership positions. In fact, at the peak of the Cathars' presence in Western Europe, women made up a substantial majority of the movement. At the time, it was the closest thing to equality a woman could find. Apart from their acknowledgement of both sexes, there were other differences too, like the Cathars believed in reincarnation. Your soul will forever be reborn until you make the decision to rid yourself of the desires of the flesh. It's the most notable difference between Christianity and Catharism, even more than the distinction of two gods, which promoted the Christian concept of Satan to a deity and offered a new perspective on morality. Reincarnation put hell on earth it meant an infinite amount of lifetimes. But the Cathars believed in the Gospels. So you may be asking yourself, did they believe in Jesus too? The answer is yes. They just didn't think he was ever flesh. Jesus was an angel sent from heaven to deliver the message of God. His physical form was an illusion, and he didn't suffer, die, or get resurrected. That was merely an allegory of how humans are meant to denounce their bodies and free their souls. They also didn't believe in the Holy Trinity, as in God being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all at once. In their eyes, Jesus was another instance of duality, he was both God and the Holy Spirit, but he was never the Son. For modern Christians, this may seem like an imaginative and unusual doctrine, 
but a closer look at history might prove just the opposite. In 64 CE, roughly 30 years after most scholars placed Jesus' death, the Roman Emperor Nero made Christianity illegal. Ironically, the Catholic Church would one day take brutal revenge on Nero's religion, Roman paganism, but it took years to achieve the type of infrastructural power they needed to make that happen. Under Nero, Christianity wasn't unified. It existed in fragments and often in secret, which resulted in a lack of common doctrine and many different interpretations of Jesus' life and legacy. The Holy Trinity wasn't considered orthodox until the first Christian Roman emperor, Constantine, made it so in 325 CE. And the idea that Jesus' body was not flesh, but something more heavenly, is called docetism. And it was a common belief prior to 367 CE, when the canonical Bible was officialized. Which is to say, the allegedly heretical elements of Catharism were once accepted among Christian communities, and the Church shares more common ancestry with the Cathars than they'd like to admit. The Cathars mostly operated in small communities that could be as small as 60 people, or as large as 600. Within those communities, the Cathars created a hierarchical structure that borrowed from the church. The decision to devote yourself fully to the Cathars was a difficult one, and they understood as much, which is why they gave you options. Option one, the perfecti, the deep end, the highest form of Catharism. To be a perfecti meant renouncing the material world in its entirety. No meat, no sex, no money, no possessions no desire. We don't know much about the process to become a perfecti, but some claim it took up to three years. Think of it as rehab. There were these withdrawal periods in which you transitioned from your life of sin to being perfect, and you were observed and guided by those who had already gotten clean. Once finished, you'd find a job doing manual labor and take up a position of authority in your community. You would then make sure that every action, step, and breath you take betters the lives of others. You dressed simply in robes with something to cover your head, be it a hood or a hat, and you walked barefoot. Option two, the credentes. For those who prefer to wade in, the laymen and women, the credentes strove to one day live the life of the perfecti, but weren't quite ready to renounce the material world in its entirety. But what's particularly interesting about the Cathars is that you didn't have to even believe in their faith to be a part of their community, which leads us to... Option three, the sympathizers, for those not interested in swimming at all. It didn't take much to be a sympathizer. All you had to do was look kindly on the Cathars, respect their decisions, and maybe provide them with a little aid. In return, they would support you and welcome you into their community. When you were a sympathizer who wanted to become an official Cathar, you would be baptized in a ritual called the Consolamentum. It typically happens twice in your lifetime, once upon conversion, then again upon your deathbed. You would present yourself to the perfecti, express your belief, and they would anoint you with holy water. The community would lay their hands upon you, welcome you, and recite some blessings. They may or may not read from the Gospels. And that's it. You were a Cathar. You could now teach their faith to others. 
As their population swelled in France and Italy, positions were created amongst the Cathars that were similar to a bishop. These leaders oversaw a number of different communities called bishoprics. The first was established around 1149 in northern France. By 1200, there were four bishoprics in Europe, several of them in France, including Albi and Montségur, and another in Lombardy, Italy. But the Cathars were, for the most part, disorganized, and intentionally so. They didn't fully believe in a central authority. Their lives and their actions were about celebrating their faith, not attending daily or weekly services. Any large gatherings in which they discussed their doctrine and the Book of Two Principles happened informally and sporadically, even as their organization became more structured. The Cathars created this intense dichotomy, on one hand, they believed that sex, meat, marriage, wealth, and the killing of any living thing was evil. But on the other hand, they expected you to fail. You didn't have to be perfect. It was enough just to try. If you were amongst the credentes, you were encouraged to abstain from sex and live a vegetarian lifestyle. But it wasn't shameful if you fell off the wagon, so to speak. In fact, more than sex, the Cathars condemned marriage and procreation. Bringing a child into the world meant that you were subjecting another soul to Rex Mundi's treacherous domain. As such, sexually active Cathars practiced sodomy, and birth control and abortions were, well, encouraged. At least, that's what their detractors would have you believe, though there's likely some truth to it. But these allegations couldn't keep converts away. Many sympathizers who lived amongst the Cathars received the consulamentum on their deathbeds, a last-ditch effort to try and make it to the gates of heaven. And the Cathars always obliged. In some cases, if the person was terminally ill, they would recommend a fast known as endura. It was a form of ritualized suicide. The dying would resist all food, water, and sleep in the hopes of bringing about their own death. It was the most extreme commitment the Cathars made in abandoning their body and its needs. But those converts were never left alone, not until they passed. Because the Cathars lived their lives in the service of others. At best, they were considered saintly. At worst, they were harmless. So in the cities and towns where they congregated, it was hard to be upset by their presence. Unless, of course, you were the Catholic Church, and people were abandoning your faith in favor of theirs. Which is exactly what happened. Beginning around 1100, Catholic missionaries descended on Cathar bishoprics to convert entire populations under the threat of death. Monks led military attacks against entire cities. As more and more threats were made against the Cathars, they were forced to start practicing their faith in hiding. They took up residence in fortresses in order to worship safely. Many of them were castles in France and Italy, the most famous of which became the Castle of Montségur, the last stronghold of the Cathars. And the theorized location of the Holy Grail and the Lost Ark of the Covenant. Coming up, medieval literature and the crusade against the Cathars. Now, back to the story. The connection between faith and poverty is as old as religion itself. 
But in Europe during the 12th century, the Cathars made a name for themselves as servants of the poor. They also took enormous strides to elevate the role of women in the communities they called home. And they never once tried to turn a profit. In fact, their religion was founded on renouncing all worldly possessions and abiding by strict ascetic principles. Which left the Catholic Church with no legs to stand on. They may have preached many of the same virtues as the Cathars, but in practice, it was hard to ignore that they became the wealthiest institution in the world by profiting off the poor. As such, the Cathars posed a serious threat to the church. They were a Christian alternative with a moral high ground. Something needed to be done before the church lost membership and thus their leader's source of income and power. By the turn of the 13th century, there'd been several attempts to quell the spread of the Cathars, but everything was unsuccessful. Enter Pope Innocent III. In 1208, he sent a monk named Pierre de Castelnau to Toulouse. Catharism was most widespread in the Languedoc region of France, so his mission was to speak with the count of its capital city. His name was Raymond VI. Castelnau asked Raymond's assistance in helping convert the Cathars to the only true religion, Catholicism. For whatever reason, Count Raymond declined. It's unclear what exactly Raymond's allegiances were to the Cathars. He could have been an observer. He could have been a sympathizer. He could have been a perfecti, for all we know. Allegedly, one of his wives was a perfecti at some point, which, given the Cathars' stance on marriage, sounds unlikely. We don't know. It's all a little unclear. What is clear, however, is the fact that Count Raymond VI flatly refused to assist the Pope. He boldly defended the Cathars and sent Castelnau away. Then, while Pierre de Castelnau was headed back to Rome, he was murdered. His killer was a knight who served the Count. It appeared to be a message to the Vatican, we will resist. When word of this reached Pope Innocent III, he called for a war. Because the Cathars were concentrated in southern France, Innocent called upon the lords and noblemen of the north. He offered them land and money if they took their armies south to kill the Cathars and all who supported them. Blood would spill, but not by the hands of the Pope. He remained at the Vatican happy to have others do his dirty work. And as a reminder, the Cathars didn't believe in violence. They were opposed to slaughtering farm animals for food. The majority of them were women. Many were children. They would never participate in a war. They knew what the Catholic Church thought of them. They thought the same thing back, and the feelings were strong. The Cathars quite literally believed that the Catholic cross was a representation of earthly corruption that they should be destroyed on sight, but they wouldn't actually destroy them, and they weren't prepared to fight. And so, they hid. They'd kept a low profile for a number of years before. It wasn't the first threat that they had received, but now they had to find safety either underground or in the few Cathar strongholds that existed. And what did the Cathars do in the shadows? They made famous art, or at least they inspired it, we think. Before the crusade against the Cathars, a literary movement had cropped up in France. 
it became the most popular genre of medieval literature in the whole world. Courtly love. At least in body, if not in soul, let her hide me within her chamber, for it wounds my heart more than blows of rod, that her slave can never therein enter. I will always close to her as flesh and nail, and believe no warnings of friend or uncle. That's an excerpt from a courtly love poem by French writer Arnaud Daniel. It's very indicative of the genre. A woman is, in some way, controlling a man. As he says, he is her slave. Courtly love still very much exists today. It's not exactly representative of modern feminism, but in its day, it was groundbreaking. It's most easily recognized by its trope of damsels in distress and the noble, honorable men who come to rescue them. While Rapunzel is reliant on a man to save her from the tower that she's trapped in, she is the one who holds power over his heart. And at the time, that was wildly progressive. Women in literature had previously only appeared as the property of men. The courtly love poet Chrétien du Toit inked some of the most famous tales of the Knights of King Arthur. In fact, du Toit was the first to ever use the name Camelot in reference to King Arthur's court. The Cathars were mostly peasants who likely wouldn't have been able to read or write, but at their peak they included artisans, business owners, artists, and even nobility, those who were literate, which means it's certainly possible that the inventor of the courtly love genre was a Cathar. Remember, the barrier of entry to the Cathars was low. You didn't even have to believe in their religion to be embraced by their community. So French writers of all kinds would have at least interacted with the Cathars, an organization run by men and women, if they weren't Cathars themselves. Some scholars point to the Cathars' views on sex as further evidence of their connection to courtly love. As we said, ideally, members renounced sex in its entirety. But if you were going to participate, it shouldn't be to create life. It should be for pleasure. And in courtly love poems, seduction is never about starting a family, which is one of the reasons that the genre itself was considered heretical. If Cathars were going to bring life to a literary style, it only makes sense that it was unorthodox. Author C.S. Lewis even believed that courtly love was an allegory for Catharism. The woman who needed help represented the feminine nature of God, or Sophia, her captor was the Catholic Church, and the Honorable Knight was the Cathar, hoping to be united with God. Unlike Lewis, we think it's a bit of a stretch, and so do more than a few historians. But it doesn't change the fact that scholars have been trying to establish a connection between courtly love poetry and the Cathars for generations. Which raises the question, why is finding that connection so important? To some extent, it feels like they want the Cathars to have created this literary genre, and in some ways, that's almost as interesting as it being true. People crave this romantic notion of the Cathars, this idea that as armies descended on them from the north... The Cathars were creating light they were creating art. It paints a very particular picture, 
Literally, if you were to take a canvas and paint the Crusaders' armies on one side and the Cathars on the other, the contrast would be incredible. You would probably call it a duality. The Cathars were good. The Crusade was evil. That's not just propaganda. Today, scholars and historians have gone out of their way to document their goodness, as if they're looking for proof that our species is capable of the type of purity that we ascribe to the Cathars. Which makes it difficult for us now to distinguish between mythos and truth, to determine whether their memory has become obscured by nostalgia and a narrative that we want to be true, or if they really are an example of perfecti, perfection. All we can say for sure is that after their martyrdom, the mysteries that followed the Cathar legacy get much weirder. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode of The Mysteries of the Cathars in Hiding. We'll cover in detail the crusade that might have wiped them off our planet. For more information on the Cathars, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book The Cathars by Malcolm Barber, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.